0: It's Minnesota Now. I'm Kathy Worzer. Our top story, the deaths of two Burnsville police officers and a firefighter paramedic killed in the line of duty over the weekend. We'll have details on that. And McAllister College's president is speaking out about softening expectations of leaders like her to speak out on current events. A bill that would ban local law enforcement from cooperating with federal immigration authorities looks like it will not pass at the state capitol we'll look at the Democrats' harder stance on immigration. Plus, hometown Nordic skiing hero Jesse Diggins is here. She'll talk about the historic World Cup race held in Minneapolis over the weekend. All that and the Minnesota Music Minute and the song of the day. It all comes your way right after the news.
1: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden says he's willing to meet with House Speaker Mike Johnson to discuss another round of assistance to fund Ukraine's defense against Russia. Speaking to reporters at the White House today, Biden also blasted congressional Republicans for failing to pass a national security bill that would have provided additional aid to Ukraine.
2: We're making a big mistake not responding. Look. The way they're walking away from the threat of Russia, the way they're walking away from NATO, the way they're walking away from meeting our obligations, is it, just shocking. I've been for a while, I've never seen anything like
1: this. The Senate tried to advance a bipartisan border security package that paired national security funds for Ukraine, but Speaker Johnson declared the bill dead on arrival in the House. A member of Israel's war cabinet says a military operation in Gaza's southernmost city would take place in about three weeks. That is unless Hamas releases Israeli hostages. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv.
3: One of the leading members of Israel's war cabinet, Minister Benny Gantz, called on Hamas to release Israeli hostages before the beginning of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan in mid-March.
0: If by Ramadan Hostages are not home. The fighting will continue everywhere, to include Rafah area.
3: Israel vows to send troops to Rafah, where the majority of Gaza's population is now sheltering. The U.S. opposes such an operation without a plan to safely evacuate Palestinian civilians. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization says a main southern Gaza hospital is no longer functional. Israel's army says its troops took over Nasser Hospital and arrested hundreds of militants inside. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv.
1: The Israeli foreign minister says Brazil's president is no longer welcome in Israel. NPR's Kerry Kahn reports Brazil's ambassador to Israel has been summoned to a meeting following comments by the leader equating the war in Gaza to the Holocaust.
4: President Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva was speaking to African leaders in Ethiopia when he criticized Israel's offensive against Hamas, saying there was no parallel in other historical moments but then added, quote, it did exist when Hitler decided to kill the Jews. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Lula had crossed a red line and should be ashamed of himself. Foreign Minister Israel Katz said, quote, the president is not welcome in Israel until he apologizes. Lula's visit to Egypt and Ethiopia has been overshadowed by the comment. At home, political opponents and Jewish leaders say he is stoking anti-Semitism. Carrie Kahn, NPR News, Rio de Janeiro.
1: This is NPR.
5: Support for NPR comes from Subaru, who, along with its retailers, is partnering with Operation Warm to provide more than 150,000 children in need with new necessities like coats, shoes, and socks. Subaru, more than a car company. This is NPR.
0: Around Minnesota right now, skies are partly to mostly sunny. Highs today mid 30s to the lower 40s. A little cooler near Lake Superior. Highs there mid 20s, lower 30s. At noon in Brainerd, it's 34. It's 24 in Grand Marais outside Bully Brew Coffee in downtown Halleck. It's 26. I'm Kathy Warzer with Minnesota News Headlines. Leaders in the Minnesota House say bipartisanship must be achieved if the bill that allows state agencies, local communities, and universities to secure funding for construction projects will pass
3: this session. Clay Masters has more. The measure known as the bonding bill requires Republican buy-in this year despite full Democratic control of state government. DFL Speaker Melissa Hortman says if Republicans don't play ball, then we won't have a bonding bill. It,
5: it absolutely has to be bipartisan or it won't happen.
3: Republican House Minority Leader Lisa Damath says the majority also has to extend a hand.
4: We
1: can work in a bipartisan fashion when we are invited to those conversations.
3: The bill funds things like bridges and water treatment plants. The dynamic could become political given it's an election year and the House holds just a slim DFL majority. I'm Clay Masters at the Capitol.
0: A Minneapolis man who is part of a carjacking ring the targeted rideshare drivers faces sentencing tomorrow. Matt Sepik reports.
3: 21-year-old William Charles Saffold is among four men who pleaded guilty to attacking mostly Somali-American Uber and Lyft drivers in September and October of 2021. Federal prosecutors say the men, all in their 20s, lured the victims to a planned location, forced them to unlock their phones, then beat and pistol-whip them. Saffold also pleaded guilty to an additional charge of pointing a gun at an FBI agent who tried to arrest him. Last week, a judge sentenced Eric Knight, Javion Tate, and Shavirio Childs-Young to prison for five, six and a half, and eight years, respectively. The sentences fell short of what the government had requested. For the last two years, Minnesota U.S. Attorney Andy Luger has prioritized the prosecution of adult carjacking suspects, but his office does not prosecute juvenile offenders. I'm Matt Sepik, Minneapolis. The deaths
0: of two Burnsville police officers and a firefighter or paramedic killed in the line of duty continue to reverberate across the country. Officers Paul Elmstrand and Matthew Ruggie and firefighter paramedic Adam Finseth are being remembered as heroes who made the ultimate sacrifice when responding to a 911 call for help. It was a domestic call that led to an hours-long standoff with a male suspect. In the wee hours of Sunday morning, the man shot the two officers and the paramedic helping one of those officers. A third officer is still in the hospital. Now, their families, the Burnsville residents, and the first responder community find themselves grieving the losses. Last night, hundreds of people gathered at a vigil for the three men. Uh, My heart just broke. Uh, There are no words. What do you say? I mean, we've said it so many times, our heart and our prayers and our sorrows go out to these people, and it's just devastating. I wish I could just surround the whole community with a big hug,
5: because
0: that's what we need. One of the first to support the families of the fallen is the Minnesota Law Enforcement Memorial Association, or Lima. This morning, officials with that group met with the officers' families to offer their support and begin the work to honor the first responders when they are laid to rest. Joining us right now is a board member of Lima, who's also the Olmsted County Sheriff Kevin Torgerson. Sheriff Torgerson, thanks for your time.
2: You bet. Thank you.
0: Where were you yesterday, and what were your first thoughts when you heard about the deaths of the first responders in Burnsville?
2: Well, I was home, um, getting ready for church, and um, as always, I'm checking in on our people. And uh, obviously, the news broke. Uh, I saw it through some social media contacts, and um, you know, I've I've been around this thing so many times that. Yeah, he, my immediate thoughts go to, obviously, the officers, their families, you know, did was their children involved in their families, um, and then the agency and the community. It, it's just a huge hole in their hearts and a huge hole in their community right now. So that's, uh, that's Lima's mission since 1974. We've been in place since 1991. We've had an honor guard that uh, basically uh, pulls all the things together and tries to Shine a little light in their uh, dark tunnel that they're in right now, because it's it's a dark place they're in, and uh, we try to get some help to them.
0: And of course, not only families, but uh, colleagues, and just everybody yeah. in the law enforcement yeah. community. I mean, the, the the faces of all the law enforcement and first responders who were outside HCMC last yesterday when the bodies were brought out it was just yeah. heartbreaking.
2: It is, and you know, you, you look at that. And I was talking to someone else this morning and asking some of the same questions: is what What do you do? How do you feel? And um, you know, you look at it, and you know, my career has spanned now uh, almost forty-four years, and and I've been there. I've I've done that, and been on ERU teams, SWAT teams, been on domestics, and that's the thing officers do and their families do is, um, you know. Uh, We've been in those situations, and for the grace of God, I'm still here. And unfortunately, those three young men are not. And and we've got to honor them. And they went there to to solve a problem. They went there to help people. And uh, you know, the worst the worst thing possible could happen, did happen. And and uh, yeah, we've got to lend support. Uh, it's going to be a, a tough road for everybody in burnsville the fire department the police department the community i mean you saw i saw the news conference last night and the city manager i mean every word he spoke was was he was shaking and um man you just feel for that because it's just it takes over your body grief and and trying to find a way to to fight through it and and move forward is, is a is a very difficult place to be
0: i know you've been in the rooms with the families of fallen law enforcement which has I, to be incredibly difficult. What what kinds of support do they need?
2: Well, um, you know, everything right now. Uh, they're just they're just uh, really in complete and total shock. I've talked with family members that I've been in the room with um, during those first few days, uh, and leading up to and through the funeral and even afterwards. And years later, they'll tell me, I don't even remember you being there, Kevin. Um, I don't remember what we talked about. I don't even remember what we, what I said, uh, cause they just are overwhelmed with grief, overwhelmed with the shock of what happened and trying to figure out, you know, what's tomorrow going to be like, what's next week going to be like. And, um, you know, they just don't know. And so we, again, we, we are in place, uh, to just try to to lend a little bit of of uh, comfort and lend a little bit of what's the next steps and kind of lead them through that and and hold their hand basically as we as we all move forward
0: I don't know if the officers had young children but I understand that Lima because, of course, grieving doesn't stop at the funeral, it just keeps going, and and it's cyclical, you know, it ebbs and flows, as you know. Um, does Lima help the little kids? I always feel so bad for the families yeah. of these fallen officers, especially the young kids.
2: Yeah, we do. Um, there's there's several different organizations that step up besides Lima. There's the uh, concerns of police survivors. Uh, we call it it's COPS, obviously, is the acronym. Um, they really do step up. They're very focused on the survivors, the families, the kids. So uh, Lima and COPS here in Minnesota, the COPS chapter, have been arm in arm in this mission uh, since uh, as long as I can remember. And they do a great job of that in supporting them um reaching out to other family members you know the unique thing and unfortunately, the sad thing is there are other people who have been through this with young children and uh you know spouses left to try to figure out now what do we do and where do we where do we go from here so uh we all will keep them in contact, and cops will be there um right from the get go here in fact they're they're probably already engaged with them. To some degree, at this point, letting them know they're there for help and support, and uh, again, hold their hand as, as they move forward. Not just this week, uh, leading up through the funerals. You know, whenever the funerals are are set, uh, you know, we're we're working on that right now with some of our board and some of our honor guard members. Um, so once we get past the funerals, um, you know, and everybody has to try to find a way to get back to work and get back to life. Um, you know, those families continue on and we don't want to let them just be left alone. So uh, Lima and Cop steps in. There's, there's scholarships that, that are available as kids get older. Um, we do a, a, a shop with Lima thing every Christmas with young children until they're into college and, um, you know, just try to be there and support them and make sure that we have never forgotten them because that is the biggest fear. And I've, I've heard this so many times, it just breaks my heart. Terribly each time I, I hear it, and that is uh, these families. You know, they they their loved one is now gone, and and <clears throat> when families join our agency here in the sheriff's office in Elms County, we we talk about that with our family members and say, you guys have joined our family too, and it's it's really important that they know that uh, we're here for them and we're here for them through the good and the bad and. And that's the one thing they say over and over is that um, they don't want their service, their their loved one's service to be forgotten. Um, and we constantly tell them year after year, day after day, month after month, uh, they will never be forgotten. We will always remember them and uh, keep them close. So we, uh, we try to uphold that as much as we can so that, uh, uh, you know, we can – Keep them moving forward. It's a it's a tough road.
0: It is a tough road, and I know that in the last year, Lima um, has been a part of at least, by my count, I believe what six uh, yeah. funerals in in our region in the past right. year or so, which seems like this is that seems like a higher rate. I don't I don't know if that is yeah. from your experience. Yeah. How how, t- how tough is it for you and the whole law enforcement community to have to keep t-
2: going to funeral after funeral after <sighs> funeral? Well it's tough. Um, you know, we get we get very in this, this period of time and you know, I was I was the commander of the honor guard for several years and on the honor guard for I think twenty four years. So you get once it happens, you get very mission focused and and that helps. It it always helped me in that sense in my way of grieving and supporting the families and the agencies is you get very mission focused on here's what we have to do, we're gonna form this group, we're gonna get these people involved. We're going to reach out for resources here and there, and and it's always been so easy because communities in the state in Minnesota have been so, uh, so very helpful and supportive in these times. Um, but w- w- Lima just kind of brings it all together logistically and forms forms the groups to to pull this thing off. And um, it it's still very tough because you know you get those moments where you do have that private time with family or private time with the agency, you know, chiefs or sheriffs. I mean, they're trying to lead their people and they too are sitting there going, "Uh, how do I do this? What do I do? And that's what Lima's for. That's what we've been doing all these years is, again, with our experience and the support that we have, um, trying to help them through that process. So it has been tough these last few years here with the Western Wisconsin deaths and and uh, Fargo, and then Pope County last year for us in Minnesota. Um, On average, people ask that routinely, on average, unfortunately through our history, it's been about one and a half officers killed in line of duty uh, each year in Minnesota, uh, which is is actually quite low compared to some other states. Um, But we we also, Lima also supports um, officers who, who, who are still on duty and die. There's a funeral, I believe, tomorrow for an officer from a South Metro agency who died of cancer recently, and we're, we're going to be helping with that, too, in the midst of all of this. Um, so um, we, do, we do a lot more than just the line of duty deaths, but uh, obviously that is the, the most important part of all of this.
0: Wow. This is a lot for you to handle coming up here in the next few days and weeks. I appreciate your time, Sheriff. Thank you so very much.
2: You bet. Thank you for your time and thank you to everybody who, who's shown the care and the support. It uh, truly means a lot. All right. We've been talking to Olmstead
0: County Sheriff Kevin Torgerson, who's also a member of the board of Lima. And Lima is the Minnesota Law Enforcement Memorial Association. Mm-hmm. This is our Minnesota Music Minute. This is Minneapolis musician Jasper Lepak with River Song. Jasper is playing a solo show in Lowry Hill this weekend. You can find more information at Jasper Lepak, Where the sun
4: makes the river shine.
0: This is Minnesota Now on NPR News. I'm Kathy Warzer. Thanks for being with us. We're a week into the Minnesota legislative session. Before it even started, more than 13 DFL lawmakers were calling to make Minnesota a sanctuary state for immigrants lacking legal status. The North Star Act would ban state and local law enforcement from cooperating with federal immigration authorities. The DFL may have a trifecta, but they have just one more seat than Republicans in the state Senate, and it looks like this bill does not have the support to pass. Multiple DFL lawmakers, including our next guest, have said publicly they won't vote for it, and legislative leaders are not prioritizing it this session. This comes as some Democrats at the national level are taking a a harder stance on immigration leading up to the 2024 election. Joining us right now to talk about this debate is DFL Senator Gret Hothschild, who represents northeastern Minnesota. Senator, welcome to the program.
3: Thanks, Kathy, for having me.
0: You said last week you won't be voting for the bill. I believe you told the Forum News Service that immigration is a federal issue, something your Republican colleagues say uh, agree with. Um, But some of your DFL colleagues say this bill would make Minnesota a welcoming state for new immigrants. What are your reservations with this bill?
3: Well, that's exactly right. I feel that immigration is a federal issue. And we've seen the gamesmanship and the political gridlock that's happening in Congress around securing our border and implementing better immigration laws. And to not let them move forward with that process, to not put the burden on our federal officials to get this job done, I think would be a disservice. Um, I don't want different laws at different states handling federal immigration law, and it's not something that I can support.
0: You're not running for re-election this fall, your House colleagues are. Let's talk about uh, Democrats threading the political needle with this issue. What are the difficulties for Democrats on this?
3: Well, I don't think it's that difficult, right? I mean, we should be focused on what it is the state's duties are. And at the end of the day, last session, we passed a historic amount of funding for our police and public safety professionals, $300 million to local governments to better uh, provide safety in our communities. That is directly in the jurisdiction of our state government and our state legislature. Uh, That's the kind of thing I wanna focus on rather than trying to delve into federal immigration laws and and figuring out how we, um, you know, pressure our local law enforcement not to work with federal officials.
0: Have you heard from any colleagues who are trying to maybe sway on the sanctuary bill?
3: I have not. Um, In fact, I have heard from several colleagues and constituents uh, that they agree with my position and they're glad that I came out and, and said what I said.
0: Um, I'm wondering here, the Star Tribune did a story last week on how schools across Minnesota are enrolling hundreds of new students who have arrived with a recent wave of Latin American migrants. Uh, There's a struggle to offer the necessary supports for these students. Hennepin County's family shelters are at five times their normal capacity. Many of those staying are migrants. Do you think Minnesota is prepared for growing numbers of newcomers?
3: Well, I think we always have to remember that We are a state that is welcoming. Um, We're a state that has a culture of having each other's back. And we have a history of immigrants settling in Minnesota and making it the state that we are today. In fact, the region that I represent, the Iron Range in Northeastern Minnesota, uh, has a long history of immigrant labor and, and immigrant families moving to the region to make the state uh, what we are. And so I think we can keep doing that. We did historic education funding this last session. Um, we've had support in health care and in higher education opportunities for immigrants. I think there's a lot of ways that we as Minnesotans can welcome these new families to our state, ensure that we have the workforce of the future and that we keep growing. Um, so there's a lot of great opportunities in having sort of that welcoming attitude here in Minnesota.
0: A welcoming attitude, but still this particular bill um, doesn't is running into some issues. Um, do you do you see this coming up again at all? Or how do you think the state might parse this going down the road?
3: No, it sounds like the leadership has has stated that there's not the votes uh, in the House and Senate and that it's uh, unlikely to move forward. And I think that's I think that's correct.
0: What do you want the federal government to do?
3: I want them to get this immigration deal done. Um, It's a shame that the very thing that uh, the Congress majority asked for with regards to border security and immigration law reforms was uh, introduced and and presented by the Biden administration. And instead of working in a bipartisan way to help secure our border and, and make our immigration laws work for our country, they walked away because of political pressure that is an unfortunate circumstance. And it's not the way that Minnesota government works. And so I want to make sure in Minnesota, we keep working together, we keep focusing on the issues that matter and that we get the job done.
0: Say so, uh, before you go, so you said you're not going to vote for the sanctuary bill, but and you have uh, some other um, areas of interest. Can you explain what those are?
3: Yeah, we're facing a rural emergency medical services crisis in Northeastern Minnesota, and really in Greater Minnesota across the board. So I'll be working diligently on some funding as well as some reforms to our emergency medical services structure your zip code, you know, shouldn't determine whether or not you get an ambulance to help save you or a loved one's life. The other thing I'm working on is child care affordability. I continue to hear in some of the most rural communities I represent that the lack of childcare and child care affordability is impacting our community's ability to keep young people there. Um, so we need to work on that. Those are going to be two of my top priorities.
0: Getting back to the rural ambulance issue, how, how um, dire, if that's the word to use, is it? How much of a crisis is rural Minnesota experiencing right now?
3: I have several communities on the Iron Range that are saying their ambulance services are going bankrupt. We saw a statewide story in Nashwalk about them closing down their ambulance service if they don't get some sort of support. You know, the challenge in rural communities is that our emergency medical services are not provided by private hospitals or nonprofits like they are in some of the wealthier suburbs of the Twin Cities. Instead, it's on the local governments with very low tax base um, to provide those services. And it's just completely unsustainable when you consider the fact that the federal government has not stepped up and provided the federal reimbursements we need on Medicare and Medicaid. So it's, it's a It's a crisis that's specifically impacting greater Minnesota, and that's why I'm so focused on it, because I represent the most rural district in Minnesota. All
0: right. Senator, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kathy. We've been talking to DFL Senator Grant Hauschild of Hermantown. He represents District 3, which covers much of northeastern Minnesota. Programming is supported by CUB. CUB's commitment is ensuring to provide its customers fresh produce. If it doesn't meet your standards, then it doesn't meet CUB's. More about Cubs Produce Commitment, cub.com. You know, not a bad day. Temperatures around the region, generally in the 20s and 30s. 36 in Appleton, that's one of the hot spots. 39 in Fargo-Moorhead. 33 in Bemidji, Rochester, 41. That's one of the hotter places that were <laughs> warmer places. 43 in Austin and Albert Lee, 25 in Grand Marais, 33 in the Twin Cities. Around the region today, it's going to be a sunny day for the most part with highs in the mid 30s and lower 40s. If you live along the north shore of Lake Superior, a little cooler along the Big Lake, highs there mid 20s and lower 30s. Overnight lows 18 to 24. And then starting tomorrow, we're going to start warming up again. So any snow cover that we've had, it, it's going to be gone. Mostly sunny skies with highs in the mid-30s and lower 40s, upper 30s, mid-40s on Wednesday. And as you get uh, through the rest of the week, it'll cool off just a titch, just a titch on Friday. But uh, we were talking to Sven Sungard earlier this morning on Morning Edition, and he says, hang on, because next week uh, the weather models are pointing to temperatures in the 50s and 60s. So, yeah, our strangely uh, warm winter continues. We're going to toss it to Elena C. right now with a look at the news. Elena? Thanks, Kathy. Flags are
5: flying at half-staff today to honor the first responders killed in the line of duty yesterday. Police are also showing up to a vigil outside of Burnsville City Hall. Police and Burnsville community citizens. Yesterday, two of the city's police officers and a firefighter paramedic were shot and killed while responding to a domestic violence call. The officers who died were Paul Elmstrand and Matthew Ruge. The firefighter paramedic who died was Adam Finseth. The man who allegedly fired on the first responders also died. Authorities in western Minnesota's Grant County say a man is dead and another is in custody after a shooting last night in the city of Elbow Lake. The sheriff's office says the men are brothers. The victim was 33 years old. The suspect is 30, and authorities say he's the one who reported the shooting just after 11 o'clock. Their names have not been released, and the sheriff's office has not released further details on the circumstances of the shooting. Wisconsin Democratic Governor Tony Evers signed new legislative district maps into law today that he proposed and that the Republicans who control the legislature passed to avoid having the liberal-controlled state Supreme Court draw the lines. Democrats hailed the signing as a major political victory in the swing state, where the legislature has been firmly under Republican control for more than a decade. Wisconsin is not a red state or a blue state. We're a purple state, and I believe our maps should reflect that basic fact. Evers said. And the latest in a series of wet winter storms is gaining strength in California. Forecasters warned earlier today of possible flooding, hail, strong winds, even brief tornadoes as the system moves south over the next few days. The National Weather Service says the central California coast is at risk of significant flooding. Mild conditions for the rest of the day across Minnesota. Tonight, partly cloudy. Overnight lows in the upper teens to mid-20s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny skies. Highs in the mid-30s to low 40s north to south.
0: It's 1229, and this is NPR News. Thank you. When a global event shakes our world, who has the responsibility to speak up or respond? Since the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, companies, organizations, and schools have spoken out or have been pressured by the public to do so. With the war in Gaza, there is a renewed pressure and scrutiny, specifically in higher education. The presidents of Harvard University and the University of Pennsylvania resigned after what they said about free speech on campus and the war. In a recent article in Inside Higher Ed... McAllister College President Suzanne Rivera said, It is time for expectations for university leaders to change. President Rivera is on the line right now. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me, Kathy. You write, and I'm quoting now we are viewed as cowards if we stay silent and criticized for supporting the wrong side or being too neutral if we speak up. Now, I know you have some theories, including the pandemic, how the pandemic changed the way university presidents communicated with constituencies, which was mostly online. Explain this a little bit more. What's the problem
4: here? Sure. Well, I think that prior to the crisis phase of the COVID pandemic, college and university presidents occasionally would speak about issues of national or world significance, but mostly they were able to focus on communicating within their campus community about things that affected their campus. But when COVID struck and we had to move all of our instruction online uh, via Zoom or whatever way we did that, it also meant that when something significant happened in the community or in the wider world, presidents were really limited in how they could communicate to their constituents, by which I mean students, faculty, staff, but in many cases also, alumni. So I I started as president of McAllister in June of 2020, just a few days after George Floyd's murder. And because everything had moved online by then, the only way I had to communicate with all of our college constituents was through written communication, either via social media or email or by putting up web pages. And I think a lot of college and university presidents did that that summer because there was a lot to talk about. There was you know, plans about whether instruction would continue in uh, online in the fall or would be in person, communication about vaccination requirements, masking requirements, and of course, a lot of communication around how institutions were going to respond to the civil rights crisis that erupted following Floyd's murder here in the Twin Cities. But because of that, we sort of trained students and their parents to expect that college and university presidents would speak in writing through some sort of proclamation or announcement anytime anything happened in the world. And even though courses are back mostly in person, and it's possible to gather as a community when something significant happens, there still is this lingering expectation that college and university presidents will make public written declarations anytime something happens in the world, whether or not it directly bears on the community they're leading.
0: And that, I'm feeling, must be a very uncomfortable position to be in.
4: Well, it creates a tremendous amount of pressure. And I think for many of us who believe strongly in free speech and the importance of free expression on a college campus, that means the tent has to be really big and there has to be room for different points of view. So what makes it tricky for, for the leader of a community like that to speak is, um anything that strays beyond amplifying the values of the institution runs the risk of, um, you know, upsetting significant portions of your community. So it's it's very hard to do anything more than affirm your own community's values about a particular incident. In the case of McAllister, we have 30,000 alumni all around the world. So if I were to take a position on something that Uh, is, you know, a controversial issue or an issue around which there are different points of view, um, I run the risk of alienating people who feel very entitled as a member of this community to have a different view. And so what happens is, and as you mentioned in your in your opening remarks, we saw this with the presidents of Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania, no matter how um, clear they are about trying to make space for all members of their community to express themselves, the public has very strong opinions about what kinds of statements are considered acceptable or uh, desirable when a, when an issue comes about, and it can be hard to navigate. Mm -hmm. What world
0: events do you believe university presidents might speak out about, if any?
4: Well, for sure, any event that directly bears on your campus community. So for example, um, in the case of George Floyd's murder by police here in the Twin Cities, it was very clear to me that we needed to speak not only about the specific safety issues that were presented on the ground here in the Twin Cities, uh, you know, because we had a duty to look after our students and other members of our community, but also that we needed to affirm our community values with regard to equity and justice. That that made sense for us to speak out about. It happened Really, right in our backyard, and we had something to say about it. But that's not to say that every time there's an uh, an issue that takes place somewhere else on the globe, that it necessarily will directly bear with our bear on our campus community. What made the Hamas attack uh, in in Israel? Um, and the Israeli retaliation in Gaza, especially tricky, is that in a community like McAllister's, which intentionally brings together from students from all around the world, who have different faith traditions and different lived experiences, is that we legitimately wanted to express care, both for our Israeli and Amer- and Jewish students who were um, concerned about the Hamas attack. And we wanted to express care for the Palestinian students who have families living in Gaza right now. And it became very difficult to, um, I think it, it became difficult in some ways to say, We can be heartbroken for more than one group of people at the same time. Let's remind ourselves about our community values, the importance of compassion, and let's attend to supporting the students on our campus, have the focus be on our campus without feeling necessarily like we had to get drawn into social media proclamations.
0: Did you uh, run into backlash from some uh, alumni who were upset and did they threaten to, say, pull donations?
4: Well, I think it always is the case that alumni feel very passionately about their alma mater and want to express their perspectives about anything the college does or doesn't do. And that happened in this case. For sure, we heard about people's opinions on, uh, you know, from a variety of different perspectives on the conflict. Um, What I will say is when people passionately love their alma mater, that means that they Um, are connected to it. And so I'm always really grateful to hear from our alumni, even when they passionately disagree with me, because it tells me that they still feel deeply connected with the college and want to see it be the very best version of itself it can be. So we welcome that kind of dialogue from alumni and from parents, students, faculty, and staff. I think what I was trying to express in this essay is that, um, I would hope that they would see our efforts to prioritize focusing on the well-being of our students who are on campus today as the number one issue and sort of not, um, you know, fault or condemn presidents who don't respond with a written proclamation within an hour of a world event happening. The top priority has to be the well-being of our students on the ground on campus, and it would only be a secondary consideration to think about whether we have something public to say about an issue.
0: But boy, as you know, you mentioned social media. That has ripped away any patina of privacy. Everyone's got an opinion not virtually anything. Uh, And I don't know, the horse seems out of the barn on this one. Um, Can you truly change expectations? Can you untrain uh, the expectations of students and parents and alums?
4: Well, I think what we can do by example is show all the steps we're taking to express care and compassion to our student population when there is a world event that's very upsetting. So what I mean by that, Kathy, is that I think it means much more for me to attend a prayer vigil um, or or a ceremony in which people can express their grief about something and to be present with our students attending to their needs than it is for me to be firing off tweets or Instagram posts, which is not to say that we won't ever use social media, but I just don't think that we need to treat social media as the go-to first line of communicating the way that we had to during the crisis phase of COVID when we didn't have the option of showing up in person to a ceremony, or a vigil on campus.
0: Before you go, what's been the reaction to what you wrote?
4: (laughs) Well, I think many of my peer presidents at other institutions have been uh, feeling a similar kind of pressure. So I heard from many of them that they appreciated me putting into words something that has been troubling them for some time. Um, And I think that our campus community is understanding that when they see me and the provost and other senior leaders showing up to events, that that's a more meaningful display of our concern for well-being than, than written statements are. But I'm sure, like anything else, that there's a diversity of opinions and that I also will hear from folks who expect me to keep writing every time there's a world event.
0: All right. Well, you laid out some interesting arguments, Madam President. Thank you so much.
4: Thank you for having me, Kathy. We've
0: been talking to McAllister College President Suzanne Rivera. She wrote an article recently in Inside Higher Education.
2: I'm Paul Huttner, and on ClimateCast, I track how the climate is changing and how our response is changing, too.
1: I'm really making decisions that are going to impact the future, and I think more people are thinking
2: that way. If we had this conversation six years ago, I'd say that there were quite a few skeptics out there. But there's very few skeptics now. If you're not doing something positive, you are part of the problem. Climate Science News and Solutions, Thursdays on All Things Considered and wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Oh, that's the sound that Olympic and world champion cross-country skier Jesse Diggins heard from spectators along the race course during a historic weekend for cross-country skiing here in Minnesota. The Lopin in Minneapolis hosted the Nordic Skiing World Cup, the first time the U.S. has hosted the event in more than 20 years. Snow fell on Theodore Worth Park for the first time this winter, just a few days before the 40,000-person event, which was sold out within a day last fall. And if that wasn't a win enough, hometown hero and Olympic gold medalist Jesse Diggins from Afton, was set to race wearing the gold bib. That means she leads in points at the World Cup so far. Well, on Sunday, Jessie stood on the podium with third place, a third place showing in the 10-kilometer freestyle race, and she is here with us to talk about it. Jessie Diggins, it's good to hear your voice again. Thank you so much for having me. You didn't win this weekend, but it looks, I mean, I loved the look on your face. It looked as though you had a blast. Tell us about it.
6: Oh, nobody had more fun than me in the entire world, I think. And this, was, this was a career dream come true, and this is something that I had been wanting and hoping for and wishing for for years and years and years, and this weekend was the coolest, most emotional, and most special weekend of my entire ski career, and that includes all three Olympics all the world championships, everything. This was so much bigger than all of that because getting to race at home and seeing my whole family out there and all these amazing families and kids out cheering on the side of the trail, I mean, there's no better feeling out there.
0: Oh my goodness. I mean, the fact that there were so many people out there and you worked so hard to get this event to come to Minnesota, um, I cannot even imagine the work that you had to do on top of doing your usual training. (laughs)
6: <laughs> I I mean, I have to say I am so proud and so grateful and so impressed by the Lopit Foundation and all the partners who made this happen, because it was a tough winter and they had to work so hard and they were so smart and so diligent in making the snow possible for this race. And we wouldn't have been able to do this if they hadn't put in all that work. And there's so many volunteers. I mean, the amount of people that had to work so hard to make this happen is mind blowing, and I think that's what made me cry for like the ninth time on Saturday because <laughs> it was, it was just so cool knowing how many people made this come to life.
0: You know, um, last week, right after the big snowfall, I talked to the race organizer. And she was, she was just giddy. She was so excited with the seven inches of fresh snow, you know, and she said, Oh, my gosh, Jesse Diggins just skied right by. (laughs) And so it was just everyone was just had these big smiles on their faces. Uh, And I know that there was the the piles of man made snow that had to come in prior to that big snowfall. What was the course like? I mean, was it a fairly decent, fast course?
6: You know, this is something most people don't know, but a lot of the times on the World Cup, we aren't skiing on pristine courses because it's oftentimes uh, artificial snow. It's often falling apart. It's been groomed like too many times. So it's the snow isn't bonding anymore and it becomes kind of this sugary, slushy pit. And this was an amazing course to ski on. They did such a good job. They were so smart in the way they prepared it, the way they packed that new snow down on top and let it stay on the top layer. It was a fair, fast, firm course, and everyone was so, so impressed. So
0: a fair, fast, firm course and a huge number of screaming fans. I'm sure that really, um, really pumped you up. Did you have a plan for your races this weekend?
6: You know, my biggest hope and dream was just getting to race in my own country and getting to race in the state of Minnesota for the first time since I was 19 years old. So I felt like I'd already won before I even put the bib on, to be totally honest with you. And, <laughs> and my biggest goal was to just enjoy it. I just wanted to soak it in. I didn't want to put pressure on myself because I wanted to be able to just ski around that course and feel those fans and the love and the passion and the energy and just feel everyone getting to share in this together and so i feel like i really got a chance to do that those warm up laps were the coolest kilometers i've ever skied in my entire life and um yeah it was it was really emotional i had friends from other countries like athletes from many other countries and coaches who were pulling out their phones mid warm up like stopping their race warm up for the world cup to pull out their phone and video because it was so incredible and so impressive to see so many fans like screaming on the side of the trail so yeah my my plan for the weekend was to just absorb all of it and just enjoy the moment and of course i wanted to race my heart out but i wasn't focused on results i was just focused on enjoying the process and crossing that finish line with nothing left in the tank.
0: Which you did. It was fun to see your U.S. (laughs) teammate, Gus Shoemaker, clinching our country's first men's World Cup win since, what was that, 1983?
6: It has been 41 years since a U.S. man won a World Cup race in distance. And... Oh my gosh. I am so proud of Gus. I mean, we're such a tight team. We're like a family. And so I've been watching him put in the work for so many years and today was his day or not today, yesterday. Well, you know what? Today is still his day. It's still his day, right? <laughs> it's going to be his whole week. And it was just, uh, I, I, an hour before my race started, I was just sobbing and crying so hard cuz i was so happy for him and the whole team it was so emotional and so yeah to get to to get to share that moment and to see someone have a career breakthrough moment you know something that you you work towards for your whole life i'm just so grateful that we got to be there and celebrate with him
0: now we should tell folks that you are in town still because you are recuperating a little bit before your first-ever Biner in Hayward, Wisconsin next weekend. How is it your first-ever Berkey?
6: Well, um, all of our World Cups until this year have been all in Europe. And so I haven't been in the U.S. in the middle of the winter for over a decade now. Um, so this is kind of the year that the stars aligned and we had a break in the World Cup calendar right after these races here at Theatre Worth. And so um, it just sort of worked out that for the first time I was going to be able to actually do the Berkey. So I'm so excited. This is a race that I've grown up watching, grown up being part of. I've done the court a little bit many times, seen my parents do the Berkey. So it's it's been a big part of um, my family's winter for as long as I can remember. So I'm finally going to get to join the tradition. Say, now, I understand
0: you tried to race the Berkey once when you were a teenager, <laughs> but that wasn't allowed, right?
6: Yeah, so, you try to sneak um, on
0: the course? What happened there?
6: <laughs> I did. Um, you have to be 18 years old to race the Perkabiner. And I was 17 and I was racing the Cordelopet, which at that point in time started at the same time as the Berkey. And the, it was on the same course. And then the Cortalopit split off and came circling back around. And I got to the cutoff and I thought, man, I'm feeling good. I can do 50K. I've got this. And you know, with my teenage brain, I just didn't really think about the fact that I had not communicated this plan to anybody else. Um, Not my parents, nobody. And I tried to sneak onto the Berkey course and I got caught and turned around, which honestly was probably a very good thing. Um, It would have been very stressful ending on Main Street with no warm-up clothes and no phone and no plans. So. <laughs> but, you know, I was just really caught up in the Berkey fever. This is That's what happens to people. You get swept away with it.
0: As an athlete, a world-class athlete, do you have some kind of recovery time in this week before you are going to race the Berkey? How does that work for you?
6: Well, um, my husband came here this weekend, and we got to spend some time together because um, he wasn't able to be in Europe. This winter, we were waiting on his green card, which he finally got. Um, So he wasn't able to leave the US. So I finally get to have a week with him, which I've been looking forward to for months. And we're just going to chill and relax and just have some downtime. Um, we're going to go back to Afton with my family and cuddle the dogs. And then we're going to head up to the Berkey.
0: All right. Say, so, by the way, as you know, the Berkey is being modified because obviously we had the snow and now it's, uh, it's kind of slipping away here. Um, you and I talked, and you don't remember this, but you and I talked uh, a few years ago about um, climate change affecting your sport. Um Gosh, what's your reaction to some of these races being modified because of climate change and the absence of snow?
6: You know, I have to say it makes me even more proud to be serving on the board of Protect Our Winners. And I'm one of their um, athletes on the Athlete Alliance. And it's important to be able to talk about climate change because it is a reality. And you know for me looking around this weekend seeing you know 40,000 fans seeing all these kids who are so fired up to go ski and so inspired and so excited to go enjoy winter it's a good reminder of why it's so important for us to keep focusing on all the things that we can do both policy wise and personal action wise to make a difference because we want to protect this sport for the next generation and the one after that. And I want all of these kids to be able to go out there and ski their own Berkey someday. So it's, it's very important.
0: Do you think that uh, the message is getting through?
6: I think so. We were able to actually have a panel after the world cup race with protect our winners and talk a little bit about why this is so important and how people can learn more and get involved. And um, I think I think it is something that we're all embracing. You know, this is everyone's planet. And so it's everyone's job to do what they can.
0: All right. I'm going to let you go and wish you well. I can only imagine if you, if you thought you had a bunch of screaming fans in Minneapolis, at theater worth Park. I'm thinking Jesse Diggins, there'll probably be tons of screaming fans in Hayward, Wisconsin too. That's what I'm thinking. Oh,
6: (laughs) I think it's going to be a really fun time. And I'm so excited to finally do the Berkey and get to share the experience with all of the amazing people here. And um, yeah, the ski community is a really incredible one. And I'm just really glad to be a part of it.
0: And then you're going off next to where? Back overseas?
6: Yeah, we're going back over to Finland to finish up the World Cup season. So we have three more weeks of racing. Um, It's going to be fast and furious and very exciting, and I think we're ready for it.
0: All right. I wish you all the best, Jesse. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We've been talking to Jessie Diggins from Afton, Minnesota. She is the most decorated cross-country skier in United States history. She is amazing. Well, I mentioned uh, the Berkey and Hayward, and we have temperatures right now that are kind of hovering around the freezing mark. Uh, Duluth Harbor, by the way, 30 degrees. It happens to be 34 in Hayward right now. So some of this new snow uh, might be getting a little slushy. This week is going to be warm again. Next week, even warmer. We'll run down details for you here a bit later on. I'm so pleased you've joined us on Minnesota Now today. Enjoy the rest of the day.